0: Out of the Vat. Hello, welcome to Out of the Vat, a podcast where we talk to philosophers about their work and about their lives, both inside and outside of philosophy. Today we'll be speaking to Mahan O'Brien, who's a senior lecturer at the University of Sussex. Most of Mahan's work is focused on issues in phenomenology, and in particular on the work of Martin Heidegger. Mahan's latest book, Heidegger's Life and Thought A Tarnished Legacy, was published in 2019. Hello, Mahan. Nice Nice to have you here. Um, can you first tell me a bit about what you're working on at the moment?
1: Yes, well thank you firstly for the invite. Um, so I have a few different things going on. Well, one is probably, I suppose, more or less done now, in that um, it's a book on Heidegger that will come out later this month, so the, the title probably was already a clue is the fact that it's going to be slightly controversial, it's called Heidegger's Life and Thought, A Tarnished Legacy. Um and The idea really was to write uh, an introductory book, an accessible book, um, partly biographical, um, and say something about the, the life as well as the thought of Martin Heidegger. Um, and I suppose I, I decided to take a bit of a risk in that uh, rather, than, rather than bypassing the, the political controversy and the, the scandal surrounding um, Heidegger, not least since the recent publication of The Black Notebooks, I thought I'll actually tell the story of his life and thought against that backdrop as well. Mm-hmm. Just so it's a, it's a warts and all account. Um, I do know, even from some feedback I've received and, and from what some Heidegger scholars think, that not everyone's comfortable with doing that. But my sense actually was that uh, people in Heidegger studies have done something of a disservice if, if what they want to do is preserve his legacy by constantly trying to whitewash or airbrush this stuff when introducing Heidegger for the first time. Because in a sense then what happens is a prospective reader, someone who's interested, who's now going to be faced with overwhelming evidence of his anti-Semitism, his activities during the 30s, his, uh, what he was willing to say in his private correspondence, they're just going to sort of say, well, you're obviously just an apologist, you've got something to hide, mm-hmm. therefore they're, they're in a sense falling into the trap, if you like, um, or 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 playing along with um, the agenda, or the you know of certain thinkers for political or philosophical reasons who, who just want Heidegger put on the index, who just mm-hmm. want to get rid of him altogether. Um, so I sort of I just really don't buy into any way the the hero worshipping or um, the exaltation of this idea that you know he's some sort of He had a small little hiccup in the 30s and then he just became this sort of mystical, avuncular monk thinking lovely thoughts on top of a hill. Mm -hmm. Um, I just don't buy into that. So I I really try to give a very, very frank, candid and at times quite unflattering portrait of Heidegger and then say, look, he's still a really important philosopher nonetheless, and this is why. And uh, These are some of the problems, these are some of the things we have to worry about and this is why I think he remains important. so that'll be out, I think it's already available actually on ebook, um, and it's out later this month in paperback and hardback. Um, then, sort of, some other work. Uh, I was at a conference in Rome last month, and I revisited some stuff I'd been thinking about with respect to Heidegger and nothingness. And so the idea of the conference was sort of um, thinking from the 1950s onwards could we think about the intersection of phenomenology? pragmatism, the Anglo-American tradition and so on and so I started to dig around to try and see well you know there's this obvious supposed divide between let's say Heidegger and Carnap that this is symbolic in some way. Carnap writes this very famous scathing 1932 paper. Uh, Heidegger kind of responds cryptically here and there um, but I was hoping to see has someone actually thought well how would you reconstruct You know, very clearly Heidegger's position Mm -hmm. to show that he can absorb those criticisms and then speak to, for example, uh, maybe American thinkers or or people from the pragmatist tradition who themselves become critical of Carnap. And There's a lot of stuff written on it. Um, I just didn't find anything that was doing what I was hoping to find. so I'm going to revisit that and do some more work in it. I had published an essay a little while ago, so I'll probably take some of that and, and try and see where that would go. Could there be a fruitful intersection? Um, I accidentally have ended up looking at the issue of the padded whip in horse racing because I've ended up on the ethics committee for the British Horse Racing Authority um, and the first big thing that we had to deal with is this very, very public and acrimonious debate about whether or not it's okay to use the padded whip in horse racing for encouragement. Um, so I sort of said, look, I'll be the person to dive into the literature and see what's there, and ended up being really disappointed, actually, because even though I was often looking in uh, peer-reviewed journals, uh, scientific uh, journals and so on, an awful lot of what I was seeing was propaganda, um, You know, confirmation bias, a lot of dubious rhetorical tactics. Um, so I thought, no, there's the, some serious work needs to be done here. So so what do you take to be
0: the, 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 key, the key insights that Heidegger brings? And also just for maybe people who've not read much Heidegger to kind of a bit of a oh, in a yes. nutshell approach to his philosophy. I mean, that's difficult, I know. Yes. Um
1: Yeah. <clears throat> uh, the, the nutshell... Um, I mean <laughs> he could be very glib altogether and say that well you know he thinks that we don't have a, an adequate sense of what we mean when we use this term being mm-hmm. um, and i mean he, the 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 amount of work and and the the just the volume of stuff that Heidegger produced over the years I mean he was a the output was prodigious so it would be almost impossible to encapsulate but there is some sense. I mean, again, this isn't an uncontroversial view. I, I have what one might call a continuity approach to Heidegger. I, I see more continuity than discontinuity, um, which, again, as I said, it's not an uncontroversial way of thinking about it. But I do genuinely think of all of his thought as returning again to that question. What What do we mean, in some sense, by this term being? Um, and his various attempts to answer that have have had remarkable um, implications for the way we conceive of Western philosophy, what we think about metaphysics. um, And you can see that influence seeping into almost everything. Um, Not not just strictly philosophy, uh, well outside of philosophy. I mean, I I argue sometimes that he's maybe the most important philosopher of the 20th century. And I don't mean that as a a value judgment um, I mean, whether who's better, Wittgenstein or Heidegger? Questions like that never made any sense to me. Yet. It makes about as much sense to me as thinking, as well, is Ronaldo better than Messi as a footballer? I think they're extraordinary. They're 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 extraordinary thinkers. Um, but in terms of the way Heidegger has continued to influence, not just philosophers, but thinkers, artists, people working in psychoanalysis, architects. Um, the the influence has just been staggering because the implications of that insight into the, the fact that what we mean by being, part of what he sees that being is not itself a thing. Um, so whatever we mean by being, it's not itself a being. Um, and that in turn prompts him to start to think about the nature of absence and nothingness mm-hmm. and to begin to see that partly what has been missed, he, I, I, you know, again I'm, I'm painting with very broad strokes, and saying things too simply, but part of what has been missed, I think he thinks, is the way we have a privileging of presence um, in terms of how we try to represent or or speak about our experience or knowledge or grasp of things, when in fact what's really going on is this constant interplay of presence and absence. Um, what's the most controversial philosophical of composition you've ever felt? <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, obviously dealing with the Heidegger controversy has meant that some of the things that I think or or claim um, are seen to be controversial. Um, They've certainly annoyed some people. Um, I actually think just the position, as I articulated Mm -hmm. just previously, is quite a moderate position. I I see it as a sort of a a middle road in a way, um, which is not to say that I'm... A mediator, but it's made some of my work uh, ruffle a few feathers, or or at least I'm seen to be controversial, because uh, you know there's a lot of in- identity politics that governs the way people approach this debate, um, and it's obviously a very emotive issue. It's a very very difficult, sensitive issue for all kinds of reasons. Um, so if you're not automatically seen to be uh, a, a supporter, a gung-ho Heidegger kind of apologist flying the flag, um, you know. There's absolutely no connection between his philosophy and um, and his politics. And he's a misunderstood genius. He's a martyr. He's a. He's not only that. He. We should think about putting him up for a knighthood or, or canonise him or something. Then you're you're the enemy. You're yeah, yeah. you're way over the other side. And then. Equally, that other side who want Heidegger's name struck or his work struck from the canon, you know that, that it's just as as one particular uh, commentator suggested. It's just an attempt to inscribe Nazism into the history of philosophy. If you're not willing to beat that drum, then they lump you in with the other side. Yeah. So, in a sense, because of that, um, sort of that last book, Heidegger, History and the Holocaust, was was maybe a controversial one, and, and, and certainly it provoked some robust responses um, in terms of the actual view I hold I, I think it's a, an, an honest one where I, I ask a simple enough question it's like, which is why does Heidegger say in 1936 or concede to a former student of his who, who is suffering terribly as a result of what's going on in Germany and has had to leave and his family are suffering as well um, Heidegger you know, it's worth noting, didn't see fit to remove the the um, the, the, the badge from his lapel, the, the swastika, I think it was, or a Nazi lapel, while meeting Lovett in Rome. Um, and when Lovett pushes him, he's, he says, yes, the, the basis for my political engagement is philosophical, in particular this concept of historicity. Um, and that's a very, very important and key element in his... Early thought—it's it's one of the it's a crucial notion of being in time. So then that already kind of undercuts the attempts that were sometimes made. Say, oh well, the the political stuff—it's um, not related to his genuine philosophical beliefs. I sort of think, well, he says it is. Mm-hmm. So if you do ask yourself the question, why does he say that? And then you consider we have more evidence now than ever we had before because of his private notebooks, but. To me, there was already plenty of evidence there. Um, before the notebooks were published, I'd, I'd finished a draft of that monograph, and I thought you could see very clearly there's questions to be answered. Um, where, where, where do you sort of try and find this connection for Heidegger? If you're Heidegger and you say that, how would it work? And then you can see in that evidence um, from the 30s, whether it's private notebooks and seminars, um, the... The, the public publications, um, the things that were available all along, you can see that there is an attempt to sort of formulate uh, a philosophy that chimes with the rhetoric of the day. Um, whether or not he ever even came close to articulating something that was really all that convincing or that was more than opportunistic, um, I, I don't actually think so, but I mean, that doesn't mean we can say that you can't examine it, because he certainly tried. He tried really hard to um, be a convincing, philosophical national socialist for a period of time, even if he thought the people that were influencing things in, uh, in, in terms of their intellectual input into national socialism were charlatans or ne'er-do-wells. It doesn't mean that he wasn't trying himself in terms of his own vision. So I guess the other thing that... Um has provoked again some heated responses is the fact that um, I don't shy away from the fact that he had very, very problematic views, whether it's just directly anti-Semitic or um, whether it's a kind of an ethnic chauvinism. Again, in, in seminars that have now been available for some time, we openly hear him trying to defend some of those views um, as sort of something that he can defend from the the or, or sort of through the lens of his own philosophical thinking, um, and that's it's that's not negligible. Um, again, the fact that he doesn't succeed, or that none of those attempts are convincing, or that they're not even really consistent with the rudiments of his thinking, doesn't really change the fact that you can't just ignore it and pretend it's not there. Uh, in a sense, I think that's a kind of bad faith. So for that reason, um, kind of squarely facing those questions in Heidegger, taking them seriously, and then trying to, in a sense, show that his philosophy survives all of that, um, the very openness or willingness to take on those questions um, was controversial. And then the insistence that we can't just dismiss Heidegger's work going forward um, made me doubly kind of controversial in some people's eyes, because they thought, well, if you've seen what he says in the notebooks, and you've, you agree that he says this in stuff in the seminars, and you agree that this is problematic, and you can see that he's trying to do X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. well, then why don't you reject him? Um, so, it's because I have a slightly more moderate view than that, or, or maybe nuanced view, I think, than that.
0: Um, which position have you changed your mind about? <laughs>
1: Uh, that one. Oh, Any okay, others? Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I. in a sense, a lot of what I've done with that stuff has been arguing against my own earlier convictions. Nice. Um, uh, I probably, I've changed my mind about, I mean, I was thinking about this uh, earlier on today. I mean, I, I feel like I'm constantly changing my mind. Um, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, I'd like to think it's a good thing that it means that I'm not ever fully convinced by wherever I am. But some of the things that uh, surprised me, was at one point uh, I, I bought into this idea that there's this radical shift or change in Heidegger. So the technical term people use for this is a turn. Mm-hmm. There's a turn in Heidegger. The, the German term is de Geira. Um And it was sort of a shorthand way for referring to the fact that Heidegger gives up on... The being in time phase, the stuff from the twenties, maybe, maybe even the early thirties, uh, in favour of this new um, type of thinking, uh, which is a, a, a radical kind of repudiation of that early stuff. And about halfway through my PhD, um, uh, I, I was I did my PhD in Boston, and everyone around me, and apart from my supervisor, perhaps. Uh, were reinforcing that view um, everywhere in the literature I looked that seemed to be the popular view and at some point that just didn't convince me anymore um, and I did almost a complete vault of and sort of decided actually no um, there's a there's a deep-seated continuity between the early and late Heidegger even within the very terms that are often juxtaposed as though they're that these are diametrically opposed notions um, so the first uh, book I had in the subtitle, it's from resoluteness to releasement, which is translations of, of particular German words in Heidegger. But the idea being that these terms are kind of continuous with each other, whereas the traditional story was that uh, one is the early Heidegger and this na- later notion of releasement is this rejection of or repudiation mm-hmm. of that. Um, that's been maybe a little bit controversial. Uh, not I certainly know that uh, a lot of Heidegger scholars... Don't agree with me, um, or share that particular interpretation. Um, I mean, a, a more everyday one for me that I'm surprised that is. Uh, I was I, for years I've been quite a fan of the argument against speciesism. I really like the. I still like the argument. I think it's a nice argument. Um, can, you, can you tell us? So the this idea that uh, it, you know, if you're if you're thinking about non-human animals, um, that certain attitudes or treatments of them which think that you can have differences in preference or treatment because they're not human beings, for example, that that essentially involves a kind of um, discrimination based on a non-moral distinction which shouldn't be relevant, uh, namely what species they belong to, and that and that the structure of that kind of discrimination is, is more or less identical to other types of ism, let's okay. say racism, for mm-hmm. example, um, and I, there's a sense in which I think there's something elegant about the argument. I find it convincing. Um, and I I remember the first time I heard someone robustly coming out against that was, again, back in, in Boston. And I went to hear Bernard Williams speak. And he he was critical of, of that position, and of Singer in particular, who's a famous yeah. advocate of, of that view. And um, I... I remained unconvinced and then slowly but surely I've I've begun to have doubts about it. That Not that the argument doesn't work or that it, it's not applicable or that it doesn't explain that sometimes it's not okay to treat... I mean, for, so for example, from a point of view of welfare, I, I'm against any form of cruelty mm-hmm. whatsoever. It just wasn't clear to me anymore that if someone were to refer to me as a speciesist, that I'd always be convinced that that was actually morally problematic. Um, okay. So, yeah, that's probably not the most popular thing in the world to say today, but I'm I'm definitely less easy with it than I than I used to be. Um, I mean, maybe the fact that I spend probably an unhealthy amount of my waking life thinking about horses, um, uh, and and, you know, I'm involved in owning and breeding them and stuff like that. Maybe right. I'm trying to justify my own uh-huh. preferences, but I've, yeah, I'm, I'm in the midst of changing my mind about that. Okay. <laughs> I think. Okay. What is the most recent work of fiction that you've read? Oy. Um So I, I was... thinking back, actually. So I, I don't get to read... I mean, it's an awful thing to say... Um, if you're, if you're supposedly working with words and books and, and everything every day. Um, but So I should probably qualify. I, I read a lot, but I, I just don't get to read fiction or novels for the sake of them being just for pleasure, if you like, mm-hmm. all that often. Um, so I, I'm kind of beginning to get frantic now as I think about how far back do I have to go. So the only time I get to read really is I, I have a very bad habit of working in the evenings, so I do tend to do this, this cardinal sin of bringing your work home. I'm uh-huh. guilty, right. constantly. gets me in trouble <laughs> a lot. Um, anyway, um, so I read an awful lot of books about horses, but they're, they're not fictional. Um, so you, whether they're jockeys, trainers, about breeding, the history of the sport and so on. So that, I actually have to go back a long ways. It was probably uh, Joyce's collection of short stories, Dubliners. That's the last thing I remember reading cover to cover just for fun and that was just glorious. Um, I mean I I had read Joyce a lot when I was younger. I think I even took a course in him um, in my first year or second year in university. Uh, But in a sense you were studying it which Mm -hmm. wasn't a bad thing but you know it's not the same kind of reading. Um, And the thing that surprised me was that they're quite a dark collection of stories and the. There's this sort of uncomfortable, dark, sinister thing creeping sometimes around the edges of them. But he's just so funny. And he really... I mean, you're in bed reading a book and I'm literally crying laughing. Um, so that, that's the last thing I can remember saying, OK, that's a piece of fiction, it's fictional, and I enjoyed it. And um, what is your favourite TV
0: show?
1: Oh, uh, I don't know if I have one. Um, I'd like to say I don't watch TV but that's not true because <laughs> if you watch a Netflix on your computer yeah, that, <laughs> that, that, that counts, that counts, counts right? Counts, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so I've I don't know what it is about Netflix or anything like that I, I seem to get sucked into watching stuff that's not great um, mm-hmm. and watching more than one episode I think that's the whole business model <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah <it> probably is <laughs> Um I I don't know if it was on Netflix now, but I do remember thinking there was like a mini... Was it a mini-series called Chernobyl?
0: I saw that, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be the most refined when it comes to whether or not something ticks all the boxes cinematically, but that for me was, yeah, very arresting. Um, It's Like, I I still kind of get quite uncomfortable when I think about it. Um, So that... uh, that's the TV show or whatever one wants to call it that I watched I uh, came away from it thinking, phew, that was more than worth the time. I, I'm not sure what I learned, but I mm. feel like I learned something. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were to press me on what I learned, I'm off the spot. I'm not really sure, but I feel like I learned a lot. I <laughs> um, <the> question. <laughs> no, no. <laughs>
0: Um, okay, can you tell us um which album you
1: listened to obsessively when you were younger? Um, I could yeah <laughs> I could try and lie, but if people <laughs> that know me listen i 'll get caught, so I basically listened to every single one of the Doors albums and anything else by them I could find religiously That's okay. That's it a was ashamed, It it wasn't, when I think back, it wasn't my finest moments, no. Um, I know that, not that the, the, I I like the music still actually, I don't listen to them much, but I was absolutely obsessed with The Doors, Mm -hmm. totally obsessed. Um, So yeah, I (laughs) I used to listen to all of The Doors albums constantly. It was back in the day where you had those, you know, cassettes and you'd stick them into these huge, big, clunky... Walkman, and yeah. I would have seven or eight coming around with me depending on my mood <laughs> <laughs> and what did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, so as in that's assuming I've grown up uh, <laughs> let's see um, okay well, an, an obvious one because I mean sort of Horses and horse racing and everything to do with horses was a large part of um, my background. One side of my family were heavily involved in that. So I suppose fairly predictably enough, um, I remember being very small and thinking that, well, you know, obviously I'm going to be a jockey too. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably knew fairly quickly that wasn't going to work out because I mean we'd go to the point points and, and races and stuff, and you could, when you're up close and personal, you just realise how just the speed of everything, and that when when a person comes off the back of a horse, it's really serious. Mm. These things are going at almost 40 miles an hour, sometimes they are. Um, So if you come tumbling, you're you're going to get hurt. And my parents do tell a story of uh, when I was very small, you know, when the kids start climbing furniture. So, apparently, I I gave that a go, but um, every time I would do it, I would put cushions all around the landing (laughs) sites, so I clearly didn't have the requisite fortitude or lack of a sense of self-preservation to be a jockey, Um, so that was gone pretty quickly, I think. Uh, I remember being interested in law very briefly in high school, I think, and I think it's because I was doing a little bit of stuff on debating teams, as you do, um, and one or two people saying, you know, oh, you should think about becoming a barrister and that, I, I, I respond to praise, so that definitely turned my head. Um, and then, that but I, I kind of was interested in literature and poetry, I was filling notebook after notebook with the most appalling doggerel imaginable. Um, and I was going to go on to this glorious, impoverished future as a misunderstood poet. Um, and then and then I went to university, and I think about, uh, yeah, probably after my first or second year, I, I had no idea what it was going to entail, but somehow I thought, well, I'm, in, I didn't think of it this way, but effectively it's what happens, like, but sure, I'm never going to leave this place anyway. Um, and I couldn't see beyond, you know, I was, well, I'll was do an MA, if what you do, well, I'll do a PhD, and I didn't think beyond that. Um, so I, yeah, I had a, a series of very, very unlikely and ridiculous aspirations, and then ended up in an unlikely and perhaps ridiculous profession. <laughs> and what do you like about being a philosopher? Uh, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I enjoy my job. There are parts of it I don't enjoy. I think that's probably par for the course of anyone that works in anything really in academia. I'm sure a lot of people have the same quibbles, administration, paperwork, et cetera, et cetera. Um, A lot of people talk about the fact that their biggest thing for them is teaching. I, I do enjoy teaching. I, um, I get a kick out of teaching, but I do also think that i anytime I'm feeling a little bit sorry for myself, I just am reminded of the fact that it's, a, it's really quite a privilege that, you know, someone just pays you to have a living to basically read books and try and struggle and wrestle with things that you're interested in figuring out anyway. Um, and I, I really do feel very lucky to be able to have a career doing that. Um, so I, I try not to ever take it for granted. Um, I I also, I mean, I'm maybe a bit lucky in that I like writing. Um, I've always liked writing and I, I was never any good at any other kind of writing, I would think. Um, I, some people probably argue I'm no good at writing philosophy either but I, that's the one I do um, and I kind of I I do enjoy that sort of challenge of well you know I remember reading stuff when I was younger and and saying Geez, that's so helpful I finally understand I think what this person might be up to mm-hmm. so the idea that there's someone out there maybe reads a passage or a paragraph or a bit of something that you've done that's having that experience that you know Again, it it's very it's very rewarding. I, um, I hopefully there are people that have felt that way sometimes about something I've written, um. And I I like the public side of it. I mean, I like discussions. Uh, they don't necessarily have to be terribly formal, but trying ideas out, you know, testing something, turning it over. Tearing it apart, putting it back together, and then saying no, I still don't understand it, and, and doing that with other people is, is quite rewarding as well. So it's sort of a privilege to just be able to do it, and and it's almost like someone said here, would you like to do your hobby, or or uh, just you know be paid to have a hobby for the rest of your life? That's it's not that you don't work hard, but it, it you know I I don't re- don't ever remember dreading my holidays being over because I had to go back to my job. Um, I just remember dreading my holidays being over because I was going back to terrible weather or something. <laughs> so. Um,
0: so you may have touched on this a little bit in your previous answer, but what, what don't you like about being a philosopher?
1: Uh, what don't I like? Uh, well, probably, yes, exactly. The, the, there's the, the trade-off that um, you do have to commit to what appear to be ever-increasing amounts of uh, paperwork, admin type jobs and and so on um but i mean i i take that to just be part of the job i mean if you have a a job in academia you're going to end up having to do some of that kind of work so that's not really that bad and i i don't feel particularly aggrieved because i i think everyone's in the same boat more or less um in terms of the profession i think I, i i mean i don't try to dwell on um the negative side of things too much but certain types of personalities um, you know so where you have extreme pretentiousness or arrogance or hostility if it's in a conference setting um, and, and I've always really found this amazing because you know you speak to people after the conference and everyone's saying the same thing who is that annoying fill in the blank in the corner who just would just not stop because they're scathing and they're polemical and they're you know and and by and large, I often think the same individuals. It's a it's an expression of their own bitterness or insecurities or whatever chip they have on their own shoulder. Um, so that that can get a bit tiresome from time to time. Um, and you you encounter a certain amount of it in peer review sometimes as well, where you know everyone gets used to rejection and and, and criticisms and critical feedback, and there's nothing wrong with it at all. Um, but <laughs> I, I had this recent incident where I got this really, really positive, helpful, constructive and also critical review of something um, from reviewer one and then famous reviewer two, just wrote the most appallingly scathing review, just explaining that I must have been the worst moron in the history of morons and then capitalised the middle of it, explaining how awful this was. You know, so, and I someone explained to me, yeah, stuff in capital letters like that is that's them shouting. Mm. And so that it just does make me wonder, like where does that kind of hostility and rage come from um and there are traces of it every so often, whether it's workshops, conferences, people responding to to your work that that's tiresome um it's no more than that i it doesn't really get to me all that much i but it is it is annoying to have to deal with it like the only other thing that's probably philosophy specific that I find a little bit dull or dreary is listening to people still harp on about the analytic continental divide in philosophy Um, I mean I I really do find it remarkable to see sort of how tenaciously some sort of militant or hard-nosed individuals are still trying to marshal what for me is a phony divide anyway Um, uh, I mean and I again it doesn't bother me too much because I, I hear less and less of it and I think the profession is thankfully moving beyond it, um, but you know whether it's identity politics or flag waving that people are expressing in those sorts of situations, it, it can be rather dull to have to sit there and, and listen to it um, and someone just sort of dismiss whole swathes of interesting um, intellectual endeavour or the work of someone who you may very well respect or admire. Um, and it's just, a, in my opinion, typically a piece of bigotry or prejudice. Um, so yeah, that, those would be the kinds of things that I find bothersome without getting to me a huge amount. If that makes sense. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, okay. Thank you very much. Thank Cheers. you. You've been listening to Out of the Vat a podcast brought to you by the Department of Philosophy, Logic and Scientific Method, the Forum for Philosophy, and the Centre for Philosophy of Natural and Social Science, all based at the London School of Economics and Political Science.